0: Let's pick up right where we left off. December 7th, 2007. The writer's strike had just entered its fifth week and contract negotiations that could have ended the strike had once again broken down. And this time, it looked final. The collective who represented the studios and production companies, the AMPTP, had deliberately torpedoed negotiations because they wanted to cut a deal with the Directors Guild of America instead of the Writers Guild. But the directors had made it clear that they wouldn't talk if the AMPTP was still bargaining with the Writers Guild. So for the sake of plausible deniability, the AMPTP declared that six of the Writers Guild's proposals were insurmountable roadblocks and said they could not and would not continue negotiations unless those six demands were withdrawn. Some of these demands were easy to lose, but others were key issues for the Writers Guild and one of them was jurisdiction over reality TV. This had been one of Patrick Verone's core platforms when he first ran for president of the Writers Guild of America West. But Verone wasn't in the meeting where the AMPTP basically told the writers to take reality TV off the table or get out of town. Instead, Verone was in Burbank, emceeing the It's All Written reality show Rally, and while his Guild compatriots were being told to withdraw their reality TV proposal, Patrick Verone was spelling it out for the crowd.
1: And let me, let me describe the big scary reality proposal that we have on the table. It goes something like this. If the reality program is a documentary, cover it because we cover documentaries. If it's a competition show, cover it because we cover quiz and game shows. If it's a talent show, cover it, because we cover comedy variety shows. That covers everything, and that is how you cover it.
0: (laughs) But in spite of Varone's determination, the idea of organizing reality TV wasn't a stone-cold knockout with all writers. After all, the WGA's own numbers said that by 2004, writers had lost out on a 1,000 paid jobs, thanks to networks replacing scripted shows with reality TV. Some writers weren't sure that they wanted to let that fox into their hen house. And now the studios were listing reality as something that the Guild would have to let go of if they wanted to keep talking. And with so many Guild members on the fence about reality TV, you gotta wonder why Varone was so stuck on organising reality TV writers. After all, he'd failed once before. This is Striking Out, a deep dive podcast about The Last Writer's Strike from the team behind Going Rogue. I'm Tansy Gardam, and today we are going to be exploring reality TV, one of the thorniest issues of The Last Writer's Strike. Because while Patrick Verone pushed to organize and unionize the writers of reality television, At the same time, TV networks buffered themselves against the strike by making as many unscripted shows as possible because the writers of those shows weren't in the WGA and therefore weren't on strike. Reality TV was also the site of one of Patrick Verone's biggest failures as the WGA West president, a year before the 07 strike and it's possible that Pride played a part in his determination to organise a sector of the industry that many people thought didn't belong in the Writers Guild. Because really, is reality TV even written? Yes. I'm answering this up front because it's not even really worth debating. Reality TV might not have a physical printed script with lines on it, but it is still constructed and put together by producers and editors, both before and after it's shot. None of these people have writer in their job title. The closest you'll probably get is story editor or story producer, but these are jobs that involve crafting a narrative and telling a story. And like Patrick Voren said, the Writers Guild covers documentary writers. And most people don't think of documentary as being scripted, but there's definitely a degree of planning and prep that people would call scripting, and then there's further shaping of the story in post-production. And reality TV is a lot like that, it's just more manufactured and lower-brow than most docos. But beyond that, it's also kind of ridiculous that this reality scripting debate was so fierce in the mid-2000s because that was an era of mostly competition reality TV, which is a lot more clearly scripted than modern observational reality shows. I hate to break the illusion, but hosts like Jeff Probst and Tyra Banks and Andrew G aren't just riffing in their intros, challenge descriptions and pieces to camera. Most, if not all of that, is scripted. But the writing of reality goes way beyond just host scripts. Take America's Next Top Model, which is a show we're going to be talking about a lot this episode. For anyone who hasn't watched it, it's a reality competition where a group of young women compete for the title of America's Next Top Model. Each week, the girls do some kind of photo shoot or runway challenge. Then they're judged on their performance, and then one of the girls is eliminated. So the challenges and broad structure of the show is soft-scripted. It's planned out in pre-production. But the real writing work happens after the episodes are shot. Here's Robert Gardner Lynn, one of the show producers on Top Model Season Seven, explaining his job to NPR back in 2006.
1: In terms of writing, from like taking a blank sheet of paper and writing from the beginning, no, we're not doing that. But we're telling a story. There are stories in this footage, but you have to find them, and so that's what we do: is find them and put together scenes that illustrate the characters, you know, show who these characters are, and show their story over the course of the episode.
0: That's a very top-line summary of a top model producer's job. But Daniel J. Blau, one of the other season 7 producers, gave a much more in-depth description of his job to Television Without Pity in 2006. He said, quote, Two show producers per episode submit treatments, which are story outlines, where we pick usually four girls per episode and give an A, B, C and D story of what we're going to be concentrating on that week. We submit a treatment of what each of the story arcs is going to be. Then we submit an actual script, which is a line by line beat of what each girl is going to be doing that takes them from when they wake up in the house in the morning to when they go to their challenges and their photo shoots and then ends in judging with one of the girls being eliminated. It is primarily a post-production job, that being we are writing everything after the fact, though we also do spend some time on set during the time that they're shooting our episodes, writing pickups for some of the talent and that kind of thing. What we don't do, and I wanna make this very clear because I've seen this around, we don't feed lines to the girls. They're actually having conversations with one another, but that doesn't stop the fact that we are doing an actual form of writing as well. Reality TV has obviously changed in the 15 years since the last writer's strike, but the job of a reality TV producer really hasn't, apart from dealing with a lot more footage thanks to smaller cameras with bigger memory cards. A producer on The Great British Bake Off probably has a very similar day-to-day workflow to the producers on Next Top Model in 2006. The one big point of difference on Bake Off used to be that Mel and Sue would stand in front of cameras swearing and saying brand names when contestants cried so the show couldn't use the footage, but even that has been lost now. Now There is a common misunderstanding that says that the 2007 writer's strike was what made reality shows take over television, that the gaps left by scripted shows were filled with reality and that the TV landscape never really recovered. This is not true. Shows like Survivor and American Idol were already massive hits well before the writers' strike. But if you want to trace the history of reality TV in America, you do need to go back to a writers' strike. The 1988 writers' strike. That strike lasted for five months. It was the longest strike in Guild history, and still is at time of recording, but the 1988 strike ended when a group of writers calling themselves the Writers' Coalition broke away from the Guild and threatened to resign and start working again unless the Guild signed a contract and ended the strike real fast. Just want to make it clear too, this was a separate group to Union Blues who ended the 1985 strike in very similar circumstances. But because the 88 strike went for so long, TV networks started looking for new shows that didn't require writers. Or at least, didn't require WGA writers. And that led to Fox picking up a show called Cops. Cops isn't what we think of as reality TV today. The producers actually had pretty stringent requirements to keep the show grounded and close to reality. But it was reality. Before COPS, shows would reenact police encounters, but COPS gave them to you up close in an unvarnished way that really should have tipped off more people about the inherent structural biases of the police force. And while COPS was closer to a documentary than what we think of as reality TV today, the market forces behind COPS were very much in line with modern reality TV. It was sensational, it was made possible by new, smaller camera technology, it was popular with young audiences, and it was also made with the cooperation of problematic people hoping to launder their public image. And COPS was cheap real cheap. When it launched, an episode of Cops cost around $200,000 to produce, which was a third of the cost of a well-oiled sitcom. You only had to pay a couple of crew members for night shoots, and it didn't even necessarily take more time to edit than most shows, because Cops avoided multiple angles and takes. The fact that the show was reality actually meant they could get around tech issues that would have been a problem on a more polished documentary. If a shot was out of focus or audio was fuzzy, that was just another hint that all of this was real. But while cops kick-started the reality TV trend from an industry perspective, the shows that we now think of as the start of reality TV came about a decade later. Survivor was first kicked around at ABC in the mid-90s, But unlike Cops, Survivor wasn't cheap. It came with a $13 million price tag. And because the story and competition ran all season, you couldn't really shoot a pilot episode. The only way to make Survivor was to commit to that entire $13 million season. So ABC ended up passing. The producers then sold the show to a Swedish television network, who made it under the new title Expedition Robinson in 1997. But between the filming and broadcast of Expedition Robinson, one of the contestants, Sinisa Savija, took his own life. Savija was the first person voted off the show, and his wife, Namina, blamed Expedition Robinson for his suicide, saying, quote, "...he was a glad and stable person before he went away, and when he came back he told me they're going to cut away the good things I did and make me look like a fool." Savija's suicide caused uproar in Sweden, and the first episode of Expedition Robinson was heavily re-edited to cut most of his scenes. But then, in spite of the controversy, Expedition Robinson became a cultural sensation. Literally half of Sweden watched the season finale, and Swedish journalist Torre Borgesson later concluded that people just chose to forget about Sevilla, because they liked the show. After Expedition Robinson's success in Sweden, Survivor finally made it to air in the States on CBS. It went from 15.5 million viewers for the first episode to 50 million for the finale. And what's more, it obliterated Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which had been ABC's breakout hit the year before. Game shows had entered a new era. The competition was no longer as important as the people playing. The next year, Fox launched American Idol. Sinisa Saeveja is written out of basically every history of Survivor, and he was also mostly edited out of the one episode of the show that he was on. And Borgeson's theory that people will ignore the human cost of reality TV if they like the show holds true to today. As audience members, we know to some degree that reality TV is manufactured. It's fake. All TV is fake, but Game of Thrones never actually beheaded anyone. And part of the appeal of reality TV, on some deep, primal level, is that we're watching real people go through real things. And we judge them, and compare them to what we think we'd do in the same situation. If we get fully into the ethical concerns of reality TV, we're never going to get to the writer's strike. But before we move on, I do want to raise something that often gets left out of discussions about the exploitative nature of reality TV. And that's the working conditions. Because reality TV is often ununionized, its working conditions can be pretty dire. We're talking regular 18-hour days, long night shoots, high stress, and no healthcare or overtime. WGA Figures from 2007 said reality TV writer-producers were working an average of 16 hours of unpaid overtime every week, which over a year would add up to more than $38,000 in lost wages. And I understand why the overwork and underpayment of crew gets less coverage than the treatment of contestants on reality shows, because at least the crew are getting paid and they have a much firmer idea of what they're getting into and they're less exposed in the final product. If you do audio on Married at First Sight, you might be underpaid for 18 hour days, but at least no one's gonna yell at you in the street. But the cheapness that has always been a selling point of reality TV for networks and broadcasters means there's an ongoing pressure to keep costs low and to not improve working conditions. And because we're talking about modern capitalism, it's historically marginalised people who are most likely to end up in these exploitative jobs. And that's also a double-edged sword, because reality TV as a result is one of the most diverse sectors of the media. It offers opportunities that other shows just don't. Here's Kai Bo, another of the writer-producers from America's Next Top Model season seven, speaking at the WGA's reality TV rally on December 7th, 2007.
2: Both on screen and behind the scenes, reality is the most diverse segment of television. Nowhere else are people of color, women, and young artists in positions of power as writers, producers, and directors enjoying virtual creative autonomy. But, as the reality genre has grown, the lines between reality and scripted have gone from blurred to non-existent. Many reality shows are now hybrids with more than half of their scripts written before they are shot. And many shows and specials now deemed reality are identical to uh, union-protected documentaries. I'm thrilled that thousands of us are able to use our talents to create amazing shows, but I'm more concerned than ever that we are still working under exploitative and illegal conditions.
0: But because reality TV was cheaper to make and a certified cultural phenomenon in the early 2000s, TV networks loved it. Even the biggest, splashiest shows still cost half as much as scripted programs. You could make as much or as little as you liked. Early reality TV shows were mostly very short, event seasons, like the first run of The Bachelor and Survivor, but those were slowly replaced with a saturation of content, three or four nights a week. Shows like American Idol and Big Brother let the audience vote and made them feel like part of TV history. And because they weren't tightly scripted, the episodes of a reality show had an elastic runtime so you could fit more ads in and put product placement on judge tables or offer sponsored products as prizes within the show. Reality TV was capitalism candy, and for every new reality show, there was less work for members of the Writers Guild. By 2007, about 40% of TV was unscripted, in big sarcastic air quotes which was an issue for the Writers Guild. Here's Patrick Verone again at that WGA reality TV rally. And just for context, at the start of this clip, he's talking about what will happen if reality TV and other sectors of the media continue to have writers who aren't part of the Writers Guild.
1: Because if they aren't, and our employers find that they can make those programs and those movies without guild wages and guild benefits, then they will and all of our prices will go down. And there'll be an army of non-Guild workers that will develop, and our leverage at the bargaining table will atrophy. 20 years ago, the WGA covered 95% of the television and film landscape. There was us, and there was Roger Corman. (laughs) Now, it's only about 60%. So for very selfish reasons alone, We must protect the interests of the whole by protecting the interests of the individuals.
0: This is also probably a good point to discuss what the Guild were asking for when they said they wanted jurisdiction over reality TV. What this would have meant was that when a signatory company to the Minimum Basic Agreement, so any company in the AMPTP, which means basically any production company in America, when one of those companies made a reality TV show, their writers would automatically be covered by the Guild. They would be entitled to Minimum Guild wages, they'd be able to join the Writers Guild, and the company employing them would have to make contributions into the Writers Guild's healthcare plan on behalf of their writers. There would have also been other employment conditions overseen by the Guild. Minimum staffing requirements, overtime, credits, residuals. Basically, the Writers Guild wanted reality TV writers to be treated like scripted TV writers. By default, you wouldn't have to unionize your show because your show would already automatically be union. This raised a lot of alarm bells for the companies who made reality TV, because as far as they were concerned, they didn't even have writers. They had story producers at best. And if all of their story producers became Guild writers who had to be paid Guild wages, that was going to cut into their bottom line. And as Patrick Verone mentioned earlier, there were selfish motivations for the Guild to want this kind of coverage. Because while the networks had a vast non-Guild workforce who could make TV during a strike, The Writers Guild had a lot less leverage. The WGA's push for jurisdiction over reality TV writers actually predated Patrick Verone's presidency. It had been brought up in the last contract negotiations in 2004, but the AMPTP had just rejected it out of hand. And while Patrick Verone took the stance that if you can't beat them, organize them, a lot of Guild writers resented reality TV workers for taking their jobs. The argument that these weren't actually writers held a lot of sway. These people didn't have writer in their job title. There were also concerns that unionizing reality TV would mean a flood of new Guild members who'd be a burden on the health and pension funds. And this was an argument that didn't actually stand up to scrutiny. Because you can't just join the Writers Guild and get healthcare. You have to do a certain amount of work to qualify for the Guild's healthcare plan. And that amount of work is based on payments that your employer makes on your behalf into the healthcare plan. So if you meet the threshold for Guild Healthcare, your healthcare has basically already been paid for, you can't be draining the system because there's a cost to entry. But like a lot of arguments that don't really stand up to scrutiny, this was very popular with people who wanted a more rational reason to oppose something that they already decided to dislike. Like me, finding out that Nick Kroll's dad was rich. And on top of all of that, there was also a jurisdictional debate about whether the Writers Guild should even be the union for reality TV writers. Again, most of them didn't have writer in their job description. And the few reality TV shows that did have union crews in the mid-2000s were organised by local chapters of IATSE. So there was an argument that if reality writer producers were going to unionise, they should do it as part of IATSE, not the Writers Guild. And this is complicated, because while there is a Producers Guild of America, it's not a labor collective like the Directors Guild or the Screen Actors Guild. It's more of a club. And the reality TV workers who did unionize with IATSE locals tended to have much clearer, more generally recognized roles, like editors and camera operators, while no one could really agree whether reality TV story producers were producers or writers. Then again, Scripted TV also has a lot of writer-producers, whose jobs can't be neatly categorized, and those guys never had any issue joining the Writers Guild. And when Patrick Verone ran for president of the WGA West, one of his platforms was bringing automatic WGA coverage to writers in both reality TV and animation. He started the Reality Organising Committee, who debated and strategized different ways to unionise the sector. And in 2006, a year before the writers' strike, Varone and the WGA West's executive director David Young organised another, smaller strike on America's Next Top Model, with the show's 12 producers walking off the job to demand a WGA contract that would ensure higher pay, residuals and guild membership for the writers of this new hybrid genre. The Top Model strike was... a disaster. First, a little bit of context. America's Next Top Model had already been airing for six seasons on the UPN network. But in 2006, CBS and Warner Brothers announced that they were going to merge UPN and its rival, the WB network, into one channel. That new channel, The CW, was actually another area of debate in the 2007 writers' strike. As a new network, it was able to pay lower writer fees and residuals, but since it had two massive corporations behind it, the WGA argued it should be paying the same wages as other networks. But that's unrelated to the rest of this episode because again, reality TV didn't pay writers' fees or residuals, and when the CW launched in 2006, it was a bit of a gamble, and America's Next Top Model was one of the biggest drawcards of the new network. So the CW and Top Model's production company, 10x10, were in a pretty vulnerable position. And this was when the Writers Guild approached the Top Model producers. There are obviously different versions of this story, but Daniel J Blau, the Top Model producer whose job description I quoted earlier, He tells a pretty damning tale. He says that while one of the 12 top model producers was involved in the organizing campaign, most of them were only tangentially aware of it until they were taken out for lunch by the Writers Guild and basically sold a story. They were told about the benefits of Guild membership, the healthcare and residuals and proper credits. And they were also told that the reality TV industry was on the edge of unionization. They just needed one show to go first. According to Blau, this was against the advice of the WGA's own reality organizing committee, who had said you couldn't organize the reality industry one show at a time. It had to be a simultaneous, industry-wide campaign across all the networks. But the Top Model team were told that Big Brother and The Amazing Race were also ready to unionize, they just needed Top Model to be brave enough to go first. According to Blau, there was no mention of any potential drawbacks. And less than a month later, the top model team all signed their union cards and the Writers Guild started trying to negotiate a union contract for them. Here's Kai Bo again, who was also one of those 12 top model producers, on what happened next.
2: A letter was submitted to our bosses um, saying that we wanted to join the Writers Guild. The company that produced the show was 10 by 10 Entertainment. The letter said that you know, we as the writers of top model wanted to be represented by the guild, and we wanted to go through a negotiation process with them um, to work out the terms. The response to our letter was that they sent us a letter from their attorney saying that they did not wish to go into negotiations with us. We were, you know, stuck with the choice of either to give up, um and just sort of go back to work and pretend that it never happened or to go
0: on strike. So on July 20th, 2006, top models 12 show producers walked off the job for a couple of hours. It was actually the next day that their official full-on strike began. The WGA organized a rally in support of the top model writers on their first official day on strike. And when The CW launched in September, the top model writers still didn't have a contract, so the Guild organised a Unity Rally and a march to the offices of CBS, who co-owned The CW. And the whole thing was seen as a bit of a dry run for 2007, with more than a thousand Guild members showing up for the Unity Rally. Patrick Verone and David Young had only been at the head of the Writers Guild for about a year, but they'd already turned it into a force to be reckoned with. But the jurisdictional issue between the WGA and IATSE had never actually been resolved, and it was pretty potent on Top Model, because in 2005 the editors on Top Model had organised as part of IATSE, and those editors worked really closely with the writer-producers. If anything, they were co-writers. So IATSE said that the WGA were trying to cut their lunch by organising the top model producers. And as a bit of retaliation, 10 by 10 agreed to IATSE organising heaps more of their below-the-line workers during that writer's strike, including camera operators, grips, and gaffes. For two months, the top model 12 continued to strike. But according to Blau, support from the Writers Guild dwindled, then disappeared. Less than two weeks after the big public unity rally outside CBS, the top model producers received letters informing them that their jobs no longer existed. With the right of producers on strike, 10x10 Entertainment had developed a new workflow where footage went straight from the shoot to the editors without a producer sorting through it to find the story. And those editors were all represented by IATSE. The writers on Top Model no longer had a job for the WGA to represent them in, although according to Kai Bo, they all found new jobs within a year, some earning $700 more every week than they had on Top Model. Bo went looking for a job writing sitcoms and found that most people hiring just wanted to talk to her about reality TV. Kai Bo remained a staunch supporter of the WGA, but Daniel J. Blau became disillusioned. Blau had done media interviews during the strike, managed by the Writers Guild, where he emphasized how supportive the guild was and how he just wanted health insurance so he could get back to work, but he became the voice of discontent afterwards. And his version of events got a good run. Here's Kai Bo doing a verbal subtweet at the reality TV rally.
2: Some of my fellow... Reality writers and producers have become wary of the Writers Guild and many have been influenced by the press who always seem to find and interview the one
0: pessimistic or depressed top model writer they can find. And she has a point, I am both seen and called out. There are 12 different versions of the top model strike story, but Daniel J Blau was given a megaphone by the media most often, and he said they'd been hung out to dry. In November 2007, Blau wrote an article for the LA Times, where he wished the Writers Guild all the best for their strike, but also warned that, quote, "...the WGA has made a critical error in underestimating the importance of reality TV." Take out Sports and & News and about a quarter of shows on Network Primetime this fall are unscripted, which is to say their writers are not members of the WGA. If this strike drags into 2008, the networks are sure to plug their schedules with hours more of such cheap, easy-to-produce programs, with words like dancing and Next Top in the title. Had the WGA fulfilled David Young's initial promise to procure Guild status for all writers working on reality, animation and non-fiction shows, the networks would shortly have nothing new on the air at all. As it stands, the WGA has pushed its members to walk out on their own jobs. And it has left the networks with powerful leverage, the ability to keep making new TV content. And Blau was right. In the lead up to the strike, as well as cutting costs, TV networks started stockpiling reality shows. And the fact that reality shows had to be block shot, which had been such a problem for that first season of Survivor, that was now a selling point since networks could shoot an entire reality show and just keep it on ice until it was needed to fill a hole in the schedule. Fox was especially well-placed to weather the strike since they had already scheduled a new season of American Idol for January. CBS, on the other hand, had to move Big Brother up a few months, but it had three episodes a week so it could cover for multiple gaps in the schedule left by scripted shows. And NBC filled its day with stockpiled shows like The Singing Bee... The Baby Borrowers, and My Dad Is Better Than Your Dad, which were all somehow real shows and not 30 Rock jokes. Next Monday, 87 Central, the dads are on the move. Yahoo! My Dad Is Better Than Your Dad moves to its regular time at 8, 7 Central. And since the Writers Guild had failed to unionize even one reality TV show, the story producers and editors of all of those shows could, as Daniel J. Blau warned, continue working through the strike. They had to cross the WGA picket line, but many of them had no choice – they were already on much harsher deals, without medical or overtime and with significantly lower wages. And one of the reality shows that aired during the writers' strike was season 9 of America's Next Top Model. It had already been airing for weeks when the strike began, it was more of a coincidence than an intentional middle finger to the striking writers. And there'd been two whole seasons of Top Model since the show had gotten rid of its story department, so technically, the show had no writers. When the Top Model 12 walked off the job, Season 7 of the show had been shot, but it was still being edited. And at some point in Season 7, the show switched from having producers to just passing footage straight on to the editors. But even after watching a lot of Top Model Season 7, I couldn't tell you when that switch happened. There is a slightly different vibe to the show by season 8, which would have definitely been using the new workflow, but that vibe shift could just be the new contestants. And maybe I couldn't find the exact moment where the show switched from producers to editors because I didn't give Top Model the forensic attention that I've given scripted shows and films, and that could mean I'm part of the problem, not taking reality TV seriously. Or it could mean that the editors on Top Model ended up taking on more and more writing work without any additional compensation. Even as TV networks used reality TV shows to cushion the impact of the strike, Patrick Barone still insisted that the WGA's next contract would include jurisdiction over reality TV. There was some suggestion in late November that the WGA would drop reality and animation as an olive branch to the AMPTP, but they didn't. This was seen as pig-headedness by the studios, but Patrick Verone insisted that it was the studios who planted the rumor they were gonna drop these demands in the first place.
1: Now, you've probably seen the stories, um, uh, perhaps some of them were even planted stories, um, that we we dropped reality as an issue in this negotiation. It was an interesting strategy on the part of the other side uh, to do that. the idea was you tell everybody that the writers dropped it so that when we bring it up and insist on talking about it, you can say, oh, we, we thought you dropped that, so you're not serious about it. Well, let me, let me say officially that it was on the table when we started these negotiations, it was on the table when we began the strike, it is on the table now, and it will be in our next contract.
0: For what it's worth, agency power broker and unsuccessful peacemaker Brian Lord apparently genuinely believed that the Guild were going to drop reality and animation when they went back to the table in late November. But if I were Patrick Verone, I'd be pretty glad I hadn't dropped those demands since it turned out that the AMPTP weren't really negotiating in good faith at that point. But you know who had a really different approach to organising reality TV workers? The Directors Guild of America. The DGA had first started trying to organize reality TV around the same time as the Writers Guild, but their push was much more successful. By 2006, there were more than 100 reality TV shows that had signed DGA contracts, meaning they employed directors who were members of the Guild, and they paid DGA rates and contributed to the DGA's health and pension fund. And while the Writers Guild's Reality Organizing Committee said you couldn't organize reality on a show-by-show basis, That was exactly how the Directors Guild did it. The DGA emphasised the need for different contracts for every show to accommodate for different needs. They were especially flexible around staffing. Usually, the DGA requires a certain amount of support for a director, but for reality shows, they acknowledged that smaller budgets and different workflows didn't mandate this kind of support. And over time, as more shows had DGA contracts, the number of non-union directors started to dwindle. Apparently some shows didn't even need to be approached by the DGA, they came to the Guild asking for coverage because they couldn't get a good director without it. A lot of people attributed the DGA's success organising reality and the WGA's failure to tone. The WGA were strident, the DGA were flexible. But I also think it's worth mentioning that the role of a director on a reality show is much clearer than the blurred line between producer and writer and a reality TV director's skills are much more transferable. A director on American Idol would be running pretty much the same control room as they would for any live broadcast, and they'd also possibly have a similar setup on a multicam sitcom. A director on Next Top Model might not direct contestants the same way that they'd direct actors, but they'd still be directing the crew. The DGA Quarterly did a profile on one of the top model directors in 2009, and it describes the director darting around set, asking the gaffer to bring down the lights around the model's mirrors and then checking on the art department's work on that episode's runway before checking some shots along a dolly track, which are all things you'd do if you were directing a scripted show. Directing reality is a different job to directing scripted, don't get me wrong, but there's definitely some crossover of skills. If you kidnapped David Fincher and made him direct an episode of Next Top Model in some kind of sore situation, he'd probably be able to do it. He might even enjoy it. But if you Freaky Friday'd a sitcom writer and a reality writer, you'd have issues. And I think this was at least a small part of why the DGA succeeded where the WGA failed, because everyone knew what a reality TV director was while they were still arguing if the story producers could really be called writers. But because the DGA had been so successful at organising reality TV on a show-by-show basis, they weren't asking for the sort of default coverage of reality TV shows that the Writers Guild wanted in their next minimum basic agreement. It was one of many things that the DGA weren't asking for. Animation wasn't a concern for the Directors Guild, and while directors do get paid residuals, like writers, the DGA also represents assistant directors and unit production managers and other below-the-line workers who don't get residuals. In 2007, 40% of the DGA's members were these below-the-line workers. And while an entry-level staff writer on a sitcom might write a script and get residuals from it, a third AD on the same sitcom isn't going to direct an episode. So a lot of the DGA's members just didn't care about DVD formulas and iTunes downloads and fair market arbiters to avoid self-dealing. And New Media was also much less of a concern for the DGA, because they'd commissioned a study on New Media in the lead-up to their contract negotiations. They'd actually spent about a million bucks on it, and that study had concluded that while digital distribution was a growing market, new media wouldn't become a significant source of income for studios in the next five years. And in retrospect, that study was mostly right. Piracy would rise over the next few years, but paid streaming services only really started making bank towards the end of that five-year period. Netflix didn't hit 50 million subscribers until 2014. And as well as all the things they weren't asking for, the Directors Guild also had that tone. The DGA's leadership weren't interested in a strike, or even in public displays of dissatisfaction. The DGA has actually only ever gone on strike once, in 1987, for a little over three hours, on the East Coast. On the West Coast, the strike lasted five minutes. So from basically every angle, the Directors Guild were a much easier group for the studios to negotiate with. And it was the studios who'd be negotiating with them. After the blow-up between the AMPTP and the Writers Guild, the four big CEOs decided to step in and get more involved with negotiations. It was Disney's Bob Iger and Fox's Peter Chernin who took on the job. And while negotiations didn't officially begin until mid-January, most of the details were ironed out well before anyone sat down at a table. Many writer-directors felt betrayed by the DGA's decision to bargain with the studios while the writers were still on strike. About 40 writer-directors wrote an open letter to the DGA asking them not to negotiate until the Writers Guild had signed a contract, but they were ignored. The WGA, for its part, filed an unfair labour practices complaint against the AMPTP for engineering the negotiation breakdown so that they could talk to the directors. The AMPTP called this desperate and baseless, but it could have genuinely been a real problem for the studios. I'm no labour relations lawyer, especially not a US one – I didn't get the ATAR. But long story short, several of those roadblock proposals that the AMPTP had said had to be withdrawn to continue negotiations were related to compensation and payment, which means that under the National Labor Relations Act, they were subject to mandatory bargaining. So basically the AMPTP had to bargain over them, they couldn't say take this off the table or fuck off. So the AMPTP were clearly in the wrong there. But the problem was, the litigation process of the National Labor Relations Board isn't exactly speedy. The studios weren't going to have any problems sorting out their deal with the directors before the WGA got them into court. And while the Directors Guild started quietly putting together the details of their deal, the AMPTP started a PR campaign against the Writers Guild, and in particular against Patrick Verone and David Young. They'd actually hired a very expensive PR firm just before the December 7th negotiation breakdown, which was another red flag for the WGA in terms of how seriously they were taking those talks. And the PR campaign against the WGA really focused in on reality TV and animation, saying that the Guild's proposals to organize writers in those sectors was really an attempt at a top-down organizing campaign, to bring everyone in Hollywood under the thumb of the Writers Guild. The WGA pushed back and said the studios were turning reality and animation into a red herring to avoid talking about other issues like payment in new media. According to John Bowman, the chair of the WGA West Negotiating Committee, the thing that the studios were really trying to kill at this point was distributors gross for new media, which was the formula that would mean writer residuals for online content came from all revenue generated instead of coming from 20% like it did for home video. This was the thing that the studios were really trying to kill, but the Guild were willing to fight for it. John Bowman later said, quote, it might seem odd to fight for an accounting formula, but we all knew how devastating the alternative would be. And the Directors Guild of America knew that too. As the informal talks continued and then formal talks began on the 12th of January, 2008, the directors had leverage. The writers going on strike had given them leverage. But the DGA were no longer just negotiating the best deal for their members, they were now setting the template for SAG and the WGA's next contracts too. And while the AMPTP wanted to cut a deal with the Directors Guild that would punish the writers, the DGA weren't going to walk into that trap. We're talking about directors here, people whose job is controlling a narrative. They weren't going to let themselves be cast as the villains. If their contract was going to set the terms for the WGA and SAG, then that contract needed to be acceptable to those other unions. The DGA might not have agreed with the Writers Guild's tactics or attitudes, but they knew if they didn't secure at least a couple of the writers' demands, then the writers might double down on the strike. So the DGA got some advice from a writer. John Wells was president of the WGA West from 1999 to 2001. A writer and director who'd worked on ER and the West Wing, Wells was well-liked and respected in the Writers Guild. But he had a bit of bad blood with Patrick Verone because he'd overseen the 2001 minimum basic agreement, which Verone had been on the negotiating committee for and which Verone thought was a bad deal that was too cosy with the studios. So while John Wells had experience in contract negotiation and was well connected through the industry, he was left out in the cold by Verone during the strike. But Wells wasn't just a writer. He was also in the Director's Guild of America, and when the DGA started talking to the studios, Wells advised them on certain terms and thresholds that they'd need to get in the contract to make it palatable to the WGA. Wells also agreed to publicly endorse the DGA's deal if they reached those terms and thresholds. But while the DGA's calm negotiations were taking place, the studios started punitively terminating writer contracts. These contracts had obviously been suspended while writers were on strike, but a lot of them also came with force majeure clauses that allowed companies to terminate contracts after six to eight weeks of a strike. And on January 14th, the first round of pink slips arrived and force majeure became a verb in Los Angeles. And suddenly, history started repeating itself. A group of disillusioned writers started meeting in secret, concerned about the direction that the Guild was going in, This group were nicknamed the Dirty 30, which is a much less flattering name than their predecessors, Union Blues in 85 and the Writers' Coalition in 88, other groups of writers who'd broken ranks and threatened to resign from the Guild and return to work if a strike wasn't wrapped up soon. The 20% producer's gross in VHS residuals is often traced directly back to the actions of Union Blues in 1985. And there were whispers in January 2008 that the Dirty 30 were about to go public and demand the Writers Guild end the strike and sign the same deal as the directors. And they were gonna demand this before the DGA even had a deal. But the Dirty 30 didn't get beyond threats. Two members of the WGA's negotiating committee, Howard Michael Gould and Robert King, arranged a sit-down with the Dirty 30 at the house of Jonathan Prince, showrunner of CBS's Kane and the only person who has since copped to being in the Dirty 30. If you recognise Prince's name, it might be from last episode. He was one of the showrunners who continued working as a producer after the strike was called, and his justification for both that and being in the Dirty 30 was the effect that the strike had on non-writers, on his crew, and his caterers, and everyone else who was affected by the film industry shutdown. Prince would later insist that the Dirty 30 didn't undermine negotiations, and they weren't traitors. And after two hours of tearing strips off the WGA reps, the Dirty 30 agreed to stay quiet, for now, and not potentially jeopardize both the WGA and DGA's contract. The Directors Guild of America officially began contract negotiations with the AMPTP on the 12th of January 2008. They announced the deal on the 17th. The biggest victory of the Directors Guild's contract was securing new media residuals for directors from total revenue, also known as distributors gross. This had been flatly unacceptable for the AMPTP when they were dealing with the writers, but with the directors, They were willing to make a deal in just six days. The new contract essentially doubled residuals on paid digital downloads, locking in 0.7% of a TV episode's online revenue for directors and 0.6% for feature films, This was about a quarter of the 2.5% that the Writers Guild had wanted, and it only applied to films and TV shows that sold over 100,000 copies. Below that number, it was 0.3% of all revenue, which was basically the same as the previous residuals under the home video formula, but still. The DGA got distributors gross over the line in six days, and distributors gross featured heavily in the DGA's press release about the tentative deal. The Chair of the Bargaining Committee, Gil Cates, declared that, quote, "...two words describe this agreement, groundbreaking and substantial. The gains in this contract for directors and their teams are extraordinary, and there are no rollbacks of any kind." The DGA also secured jurisdiction over new media productions by the studios, with some conditions. Meaning if major companies wanted to make webisodes or any other content for the internet above a certain budget threshold, they had to employ DGA directors under DGA conditions. This all set a precedent for the same deal for writers and actors, but the budget threshold stopped a flood of aspiring directors making YouTube videos and then using them as credits to join the DGA. The director's deal also had ad-supported online streaming residuals after a 17-day window for free promotional streaming. But if networks wanted to keep content online after those 17 days, they had to pay their directors, which also set up the same for writers and actors. These online streaming residuals were not huge. There was basically a flat $1,200 for the first year of streaming and then 2% of any ad revenue generated after that. Which was obviously better than nothing, but it wasn't the five figures that directors and writers usually got paid for network reruns. And because it was a flat fee, it wasn't at all related to the size of the online audience. But the DGA did now get to know how many people were watching online. As part of their new deal, the companies were contractually obliged to give the DGA access to their online deals and data so the DGA could monitor the online streaming marketplace and prepare for their next negotiation in 2011. This access was, to use the DGA's own words, new and unprecedented. The DGA's president, Michael Apted, acknowledged that this was a difficult negotiation, but also said that, quote, Nonetheless, we managed to produce an agreement that enshrines the two fundamental principles we regard as absolutely crucial to any employment and compensation agreement in this digital age. First, jurisdiction is essential. Without secure jurisdiction over new media production, compensation formulas are meaningless. Second, the internet is not free. We must receive fair compensation for the use and reuse of our work on the internet, whether it was originally created for other media platforms or expressly for online distribution. It was the sort of agreement that the Directors Guild could take into the future. And it was also the sort of agreement that the studios had categorically refused to give the Writers Guild. But now the directors had a deal, the clock was ticking for the WGA. This episode of Striking Out was originally meant to be released on the 4th of June 2023, but it was delayed by a week because I've been having some issues with long COVID, which is also why I sound more nasal than usual this season. But I'm actually quite glad for the delay because it means that I can tell you on the 4th of June, the day that this was meant to come out, the Directors Guild of America announced that they had reached a tentative deal with the AMPTP for their next three-year contract more than a month after the Writers Guild went on strike for the first time since 2008. The current DGA contract was yet to expire, it had a few more weeks on it, but they were cutting it pretty fine considering that the DGA normally negotiate their contracts months in advance, so they probably used the writers' strike as leverage. Again. It's also likely that the AMPTP wanted to undercut the striking writers by reaching a deal with the directors first and setting a template for the WGA's new contract. The AMPTP, by the way, is now led by Carol Lombardini, who was second in command during the last strike. The DGA's deal has some interesting concessions in it, which we'll be discussing in the episode after next, but there are also a lot of things that the Writers Guild had as key priorities going into this strike that the DGA just weren't interested in. The AMPTP are clearly hoping that time is a flat circle. But the Writers Guild are insisting it's not. The WGA have congratulated the directors on their deal, but made it clear they will not be using it as a template, since so many of their proposals this year are specific only to writers. Here's Chris Kayser, co-chair of the WGA's 2023 negotiating committee, speaking to members a few days before the DGA deal was announced.
1: This is their strategy such as it is. The Same old strategy, but it's not going to work. If Carol Lombardini thinks negotiating with the DGA while we're out on strike is some kind of Trump card, she's going to find out that her 2007-8 playbook doesn't belong in a negotiating room,
0: it belongs in a museum. At time of recording, the Directors Guild of America's members are currently voting on whether or not to approve the new contract and the Actors Guild SAG-AFTRA have just overwhelmingly voted to go on strike on July 1st if they don't have a satisfactory contract by then. So things could very well go differently this time. But in July 2008, as soon as the DGA announced their tentative new contract, the Writers Guild were under increasing pressure to take a similar deal. Literally an hour after the DGA went public with their new deal, David Young got a phone call from Fox's Peter Chernin, offering to restart informal discussions at a breakfast meeting the next Tuesday. I can neither confirm nor deny if anyone on the call said see you next Tuesday. The breakfast meeting when it came was pretty small. Just Patrick Verone, David Young, and John Bowman from the Writers Guild, and Peter Chernin and Bob Iger representing the studios. The CEOs had once again pulled rank on the AMPTP, leaving the professional negotiators out of the loop, since their negotiations so far hadn't been that professional. Bob Iger and Peter Chernin were friendly, but direct. The DGA's deal would now be the template for the Writers Guild's contract. There would be some tailoring to suit writer-specific needs and questions, but the broad strokes were already set. There would be no side issues or diversions to further talks. The WGA's demand for jurisdiction over reality TV and animation had to die. So next time on Striking Out, just before it goes, we're going to talk about animation and why it's never been covered by the Writers Guild. If you've listened to Going Solo or you're unfortunate enough to know me in real life, you already know that I'm a massive animation nerd. So it's with a heavy heart that I say we're going to look at animation through the lens of South Park, specifically their borderline incomprehensible episode about the writer's strike. Striking Out is a new season of Going Rogue, written and presented by Tansy Garden, with editorial assistance from Charles O'Grady and Christian Byers. Our music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech and Shane Ivers from Silverman Sound Studios, and our logo uses a photo by Annika Mickelson. You can follow the show on Twitter at Going rogue underscore Pod, and you can follow me at TansyClipboard. I also want to give a special thank you to Tonya Barnes and her podcast, The Writer's Strike Chronicles, which did daily updates on The Strike back in 07 and 08. It's been a massive resource over the course of the show, and it's her recording of the WGA's reality TV rally that you heard a lot of this episode.